God speaks to us in many different ways, congregation. Its grand goal is to speak to us about God's salvation in Jesus Christ. But the Word of God is a very broad book. It addresses every area of our lives. It also deals with nature and creation and how we are to relate to the world round about us. A few weeks ago, we began our study, the book of Genesis, by looking at its structure and its major purpose. And we saw many major truths about God. Well, tonight, we want to look also at truths about this earth and about man and about our reaction to this earth. So we may well say that in one way, Genesis 1 begins with the words, in the beginning, God, but it ends with the words, in the beginning, man. Man has a responsibility in relationship to this great God, the God of a wonderful creation. And so we want to look at this chapter again with you tonight, and we will use as our text words simply the last verse, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Our theme then, God's wonderful creation. First we will look at its triune author. And God saw everything that he had made. Second, its beautiful method. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. A method repeated six times. And third, its practical result. And behold, it was very good. We want to see what that means for us, that it was very good. So God's wonderful creation, its triune author, its beautiful method, its practical result. Now before we plumb a bit into the particulars of Genesis 1, I want to set before you three things about the right approach to this very controversial chapter. The first thing is to say a word about the approach as to its origin. We believe that Genesis 1, like every other chapter of the Bible, has its origin in the mind and heart of God. A living God who discovers himself, who reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. The scriptures we believe are of divine origin and authority. And these first 11 chapters of Genesis, so frequently disparaged as non-historical in our day by secular and religious scholars alike, are quoted or alluded to 35 times in the New Testament within the context of their historicity. That means within the context that they are historical realities. So we believe that the New Testament affirms the Old, also the opening chapters. And we approach Genesis 1 and subject ourselves to it as being of divine origin as we bow under the Lordship of Christ. Recognizing that every aspect of God's account of creation is truth. So the God of creation and of redemption, the God of science and of scripture, the God of nature 
and of grace are the same God. And we approach this origin in faith. Hebrews 11.3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And then secondly, we not only approach this chapter in reliance upon its divine origin, but we also recognize that the purpose of Genesis 1 is primarily practical in nature. And that's important for us to grasp. Some people expect Genesis 1 to be filled with scientific truth that can be discovered by research and observation and deduction. Well, Genesis 1 is not unscientific. But the purpose of Genesis 1, happily, is not to use modern scientifical principles to convey to us in every detail how God created the world. We are thankful that it's not so. Because you see, science is always changing. The textbooks I had, young people, when I was your age, in chemistry or physics, are very different from the textbooks you have today. The textbooks I had are in the garbage heap because so much has changed in those years. You need new textbooks. But what God does, He sets before us the grand practical truths of His creation in Genesis 1. The unchanging principles of His creation. And so we understand that the Bible in Genesis 1 isn't pretending to be scientific in the sense of modern scientific research of establishing hypotheses and deductions, which are always in flux. Besides, if God had written it that way in terms of 21st century science, people like Abraham, David, and Paul wouldn't have understood what it was talking about. It would have been unintelligible, probably to most of us as well. So, the practical goal of Genesis 1 must be kept in mind. That God is aiming here, not so much for scientific detail, as He is for theological and moral truth. Giving us the grand strokes of His his divinity and His exaltedness, as we heard last time. As well as His central efforts toward this earth and His grand and glorious creation of man. And what that involves. So that's the second thing. The third and final thing I want to say by way of preface is that we must recognize as we approach Genesis 1 that it has a selective focus. God wanted to tell everything about creation. He could have written a book as long as the Bible itself. That was not God's goal. God selected three major themes for Genesis 1. The first we saw last time. The theocentric theme. God-centered theme. We saw, didn't we, how that nearly every verse begins with, and God said, and God saw. It's a theocentric chapter. We saw God's great attributes in this chapter last time. We saw His mighty works. We saw His glorious and sovereign and merciful character. Truly, this chapter is theocentric. But it's also geocentric. G-E-O. Geo, it means earth-centered. You see, in verse 1, we, we focused on last time, in the beginning, God. But the rest of that verse says, created the heaven and the earth. And it's remarkable if you look at the vastness of this universe. 
that God spends most of his time in this chapter focusing on his dealings with this little tiny planet Earth. As he makes a transition to verse 2, he already says, And the earth was without form and void. What God wants to tell us here already is that the whole Bible is really the story of God's dealings with earth and with man whom he made to dwell on the earth. So even though it is ultimately theocentric, there is an, a, there is an aspect in which Genesis 1 is also geocentric. And then thirdly, it is of course anthropocentric. Anthropos is a Greek word for man. It centers on man. All of all of Genesis 1 builds and builds, doesn't it? Until God comes with the apex of His creation. Man. And then God doesn't just say, and it happens. But the God who made the millions and billions and trillions of stars and galaxies with one word from His mouth, when He came to make you and me, He paused and He said, Let us make man. In our image. A tremendous emphasis here. On who we are. On our dignity. Yes, there is a sense in which Genesis 1 is anthropocentric as well. Well, these then are the things we need to say by way of preface. Now, the author of creation, our first point this evening. The author of creation is, of course, God himself. God is the prime mover. In every case, it's always, as we saw last time, and God said. God is the subject and the object, remember we saw. God is the one doing the acting. Someone once said, the great uncaused first cause of creation is God. It is God's creative activity. God's personal mind and will. Let there be. And it was so. And it was so. And it was so. You see, we can never take a mechanistic view of our creation or of our origin. We can never ascribe it to chance or to some impersonal life force because it was a personal God who created every aspect of this earth and every aspect of you and me, of our soul and of our body. And God says of that creation, the very God who did it, and God saw, again, personal God, everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. But it wasn't only the Father. We also read that the Holy Spirit had an intimate hand in creation. In verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved, in the original Hebrew, hovered upon the face of the waters. The same Hebrew word is used in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. You remember where it talks about the mother bird who is hovering over her young. So here, the Holy Spirit, in God's first act of creation, when He made the heavens and the earth, the Holy Spirit hovers over that formless void he hovers over the earth to bring forth life from matter that is without form and void. And there's something wonderful about that congregation. When you consider that the same Holy Spirit who at creation dwells 
over creation, hovering over it, is the same Spirit who works out the new creation in us. And is always, as it were, taking up residence within believers and hovering over His own work. Just the same way. The same Spirit who broods over the unformed deep, broods over our lives and all their chaos, and brings out of the chaos order and form and beauty and glory. So the same Spirit who acted upon God's own Word and brought a beautiful earth out of a formless void, that same Spirit enters into our hearts and out of our formless void, He brings forth a new creation in Christ Jesus, beautiful in the eyes of the Most High God. But then, too, the Son of God is here, isn't He? It's not just the Father and the Son and the Spirit involved in creation. We read in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, John 1 verse 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So that means to say that Jesus Christ was intimately involved as well in every detail, every part of the creative process. And so in that grand and glorious primeval hour in which this earth came into being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, the great triune God whom the galaxies cannot contain, that God bothered Himself to create every detail of our little tiny earth. So small in his eyes, it is smaller than a pea on your plate, boys and girls. But so intimate is the triune God's care and love that he came and formed every detail and made you in every detail, gave you every hair of your head. And God saw that it was very good. Now, what does all this tell us? It tells us, congregation, that you and I owe our all to our grand and glorious Creator. And it tells us that the God who caused this earth and you and me and our covenant Adam to begin very well, the God who was there in the first hour of creation, is an always present God. And that God will be there in the last hour. Yes, He is there from eternity to eternity. And all things are naked and open before Him with whom we have to do. Therefore, the question of this hour is, are you and am I prepared to live unto our Creator, prepared to die for His sake, Prepare to stand in judgment before the living author of our creation. You owe everything you have, everything you do, every capability you, you know to the living God. Every move of your hand, every blink of your eye, every movement of your feet, every thought in your mind, every affection, Every act of your will, 
you owe to the living Creator. And that God made you very good in our covenant head. Good and upright. Man has been made, Ecclesiastes 7 says, but man has sought out many inventions. One day, dear congregation, God will require His image back from every one of us. And the only way we can be restored into that image, as we will hear in Genesis 2 and 3, is through the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, who came and never sinned, so that He may take the place of sinners and restore them in perfection to their Creator. But now Genesis 1 not only speaks about a magnificent author of creation, it also speaks about a beautiful method in creation. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org slash rst4. God's method, of course, is first and foremost, His Word spoken. We read that. I tried to emphasize that as I read it. Perhaps you caught that. And God said. And God said. You see, He commands and it is. God's voice alone is sufficient to establish the created order. And yet there are ordered stages in God's creation. According to Genesis 1, beautiful Stages. The first stage is Genesis 1 verse 2. If you look at it with me for a moment. Where the earth when it was created was without form and void. The Hebrew word actually means chaotic and empty. It was a trackless, formless, uninhabited land. That was the first stage. There was an emptiness, a void after God brought creation into being in its first stage. And that has led many scholars... Not only secular scholars, but also uh, conservative evangelical scholars to teach that there was, must have been some kind of prehistorical catastrophe which occurred by some means between verses 1 and 3. And that from verse 3 on, God is really recreating what was laid waste. This is sometimes called the gap theory because it allows for a great gap of of time. But that's a very unnatural and a very forced interpretation. Because verse 2, by all normal usage of the Hebrew language, is simply an expansion of the statement made in verse 1. We read of no historic, prehistoric catastrophe occurring over a long period of time. In fact, such a catastrophe would really run contrary to our text tonight, wouldn't it? That God saw all creation. That it was very good. God didn't say all his recreated creation was very good. And the, and the first creation was, was somehow bad. 
It's not a sinful chaos. It's just simply God's first step. God made the heavens and the earth in a, in a formless void. And then God went on to another stage of His creation in verse 3 and began to implement in six stages called an evening and a morning, a 24-hour day, God implemented His creation. Now these six stages all follow a beautiful pattern, a beautiful method, don't they? God speaks, God acts, it happens, and then we read what day it happened on. There's a beautiful structure, isn't there? Look just for a moment with me. We won't spend too much time on this, but study it yourself at home. But look, look at the first day, for example. God creates light and separates it from darkness. We read that in verses 4 and 5. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and so forth. But notice that the creation of light here is not the creation of the sun. That didn't happen until the fourth day. There's a pattern between day one and day four. And it's interesting too, isn't it, to notice that even though many scientists will argue and say, how could this have happened? How could there be light without the sun? It's interesting that in the closing chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we read that God's light outlasts the sun. God's created light came before the sun, preceded the sun, and it superseded the sun. For we read there and in Revelation 22, verse 5, There shall be no night there, and they, they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, God is able to do this. This creation of life, this creation of light, is associated with life and truth and purity. And it's God's way of beginning to bring order out of the formless void. He first brings light. And out of that, He begins to work with His creation. Stage by stage. And so God has a wonderful pattern here between day one and and day four. You notice day four in verses 14 through 19. That He creates the lights in the heavens. The greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. And then it says, you notice in italics words in verse, verses 16, He made, but then it says, the stars also. So the He made is not in the original. It just simply says, almost as an afterthought, Moses almost says it casually, the stars also. The stars also. You see, God creates things so easily. Yeah, just, just a word, and well, there's all the stars of the heavens. And we don't have time, of course, to look into every one of the wonders of creation, but let me just take one minute to focus on the wonder of the stars, so easily done by God. How, how great, how vast the heavens are. You know what it is, boys and girls, to look up on a very clear night and you see hundreds, even thousands of stars. If you're far out in the country, someone said they counted over 10,000 stars they saw in one night. But that's only a few of them. Thousands of these ten thousands of stars belong to a special grouping of stars known as the Milky Way, to which our sun belongs. And our sun is, is at best an average-sized star. And then there are other thousands of entire galaxies beyond the Milky Way. 
A typical galaxy, galaxy contains billions, not millions, billions of individual stars. Our galaxy alone, scientists tell us, contains 200 billion stars. And our galaxy is in the form of a giant spiral rotating majestically in space. It's glowing arms trailing behind it. And our sun is just in one little arm of one little spiral. And our little tiny earth going around the little tiny sun. And it will make a completion, a complete rotation around the galaxy for 250 million years. This is just our little galaxy. And then there's Tens of thousands of more galaxies that have been discovered with powerful telescopes. And in between the galaxies, the distance from the edge of one average galaxy to another average galaxy is 600,000 trillion miles. Just between galaxies. And there's tens of thousands of those galaxies. How great thou art! He made the stars also. That's our God. And that God bothers with you and me. That God invites us to salvation as fallen creatures in Jesus Christ. Do you see the insult that it is to reject the gospel in the face of this grand and glorious God that sincerely comes to us in the preaching of the gospel from week to week and says, Sinner, come unto me. Oh, it is something to rebuff a great Creator and a great Redeemer such as the living God. Then there's a beautiful parallel between day two and day five as well, isn't there? Verses six through eight, you see the sea and the sky are created. And then in, 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 in the verses 20 through 23, on the fifth day, God creates the creatures to inhabit the sea, that is the fish, and the creatures to inhabit the air, the sky, that is the birds. And you have the same thing, don't you? With day three and six. The third day, verses nine through 13, God creates the dry land and the vegetation which we call the fertile earth. And then on the sixth day, God creates those who will inhabit the dry land, the animal creation, and eventually man. And we hope to have a separate sermon, God willing, on our creation. There's a very important things to say about our creation. But you notice just tonight, in the second point, I want to just focus with you on this beautiful symmetry. Day one, light. Day four, Moon and stars to fill the light. Day two, firmament. Day five, fish and birds to fill the firmament. Day three, the land and water. Day six, the land creatures and man to fill the land and the water. So you see God making something and then making something else to fill what he has made. That's his pattern. God is always a filling God. That is true in the realm of grace also, isn't it? That's the fullness of Pentecost. Pentecost means fullness because the Holy Spirit comes and fills the church and fills the hearts and fills the home and He fills our lives, you see. He empties us to fill us so that our cups run over. So God is a God of order. He's a God of purpose. and He's a God of fullness. He's never a God of chance. So that teaches us that we are to live lives. We are to be creatures of order and purpose and to draw from the fullness of God if we want to live lives, full lives, in the midst of this world. 
Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.